to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh! who rolls up and goes straight on. This is quite appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Unqualified. We uh, we hope you've had a great off season. Ours at Unqualified has been full of unfilled promises and unrealistic expectations, which is probably why we've brought you zero pieces of new content for the last three months. But we are back. Uh, we had cars on track last weekend. G. The season officially starts in Bahrain this coming weekend. You can smell the sustainable gas fumes in the air. As always, you're with me from the Mile High City, buddy. How excited are you to get things going this season? Oh, hugely. Uh, I think I think this year has even more excitement in store than last year. And let's be honest, we really didn't have that much to cover. And our our welcome would quickly be worn out if we produced any more than, you know, the 23 or 24 episodes expected in a in a given season. So this feels like the the right mix. They got a, a break from us as much as I got a break from you, so I think, uh, yeah, I think we're all in good spirits. Dude, the, you could just tell like the the days of late January, early February, are the dog days of F one media, and like even the race is like scraping together like old historical videos and interviews. Just like it, it's 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 a dark dark time, but in the grand scheme of things, a short off season, unlike a lot of other sports. Oh, it's crazy short, and I mean, I can't even imagine it for the drivers and the teams, and so as we'll get into here, you know, when you think about what evolutions each team is making, and whether or not they're great strides or not, it's like, well, they had like two months. I haven't done anything in two months, you know, professionally, so I can't imagine uh, how far those guys can can get, so... um, yeah, and you think let everybody else take the break as well. They don't have anything to cover. They're not producing anything of quality. Like take a nice teacher's vacation and and come back in February. Well, we got a packed agenda and a ton to get through. Uh, amongst them, obviously, a ton of off season activity. We talked a little bit before Christmas, but obviously, a lot has transpired since then. Uh, we obviously have testing reactions, drive to survive reactions. I think you and I are both through the entire new season at this point. I know I definitely am. Uh, we also have livery reactions, so a ton of important topics to get through. You've put together a lot of great notes, so where do you want to start? Well, as you said, I think there's a a ton of important topics to cover, but we'd be remiss if we didn't focus on really one of the most important pieces of news as of late. Uh, it has to do with medical news around premier driving talent, Lance Stroll. <laughs> Biking incident. Really? Biking incident, cycling, let's be clear, cycling incident. Uh, the the degree to which he is injured to date is still uh, a bit of a mystery. We presume it's a wrist injury, maybe two wrists. Uh, so he, he might have a little bit of that uh, um, Tim Cook syndrome for the next few weeks uh, with the weak wrists. But, um, you know, that means that <laughs> testing... Cook, not safe. Oh, man. <laughs> no, you thought it was just going to be a one season thing. Oh, no, that oh, that God. performance deserves a, a seasonal callback. So um, but what that did was open up the door for F2 champion uh, Drogovic to start or, or carry a little bit of the load in testing and potentially even open the door for his uh, his first race 
in F1 there in Bahrain. But yeah, I'm curious, you know, we just came off of a, of a Whistler skiing trip, you know, pushed it to the limits on cliffs and trees. And I'm always curious about these people who have like, you know, high paying jobs, you know, premier sports positions. And you think you have all this money and this ability to do anything in the world. And yet you also have this like massive risk hanging over your head where, you know, the most exciting winter sport you can do, you know, is snowshoeing. I think there was a, some Instagram shots of Hamilton snowshoeing a couple of years ago. And I thought, well, that's kind of lame, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to risk your 30 mil plus a year job. So if you were a driver in, in F1, like would your lifestyle change at all? You think, would you say no ski trips, no cycling? Would you just ratchet it back and stick to the blues? I mean, Obviously, if I'm a driver, I'm not changing my lifestyle until a team puts it in my contract that I have to. But I think this has kind of always been one of those just like ongoing jokes in professional sports about like teams could put restrictive clauses in your contracts or put protections against themselves over what they have to pay you if you got personally injured. But then like nobody really ever. It's kind of always like a hint, hint, wink, wink. Like I'm not really going to adhere to this. I'm going to live my life and like we'll just trust that I'm not going to get unlucky. But it is notable that this is the second Aston Martin driver in two years that has lost track time because of a cycling incident. So I don't know, maybe at some point teams should start looking at that. Right. Because like, I don't know, like time in car is really, really important in F1 missing races because of this type of stuff matters a lot. And cycling happens to be one of the most popular off track activities for, I mean, look at Voucher Botas. He's basically like a semi pro cyclist now. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. Like, you you think it's easy to get hurt in cycling. Try doing it competitively in a pack of 100 riders, right? Like, Yeah, I would say he's far more prone to get serious injury and in sort of a Peloton pile up yeah. than, you know, some more casual riding for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe there's some clause in his contract where they skip a couple payments. You know, may, maybe he had an incentive bonus for participating in testing that he didn't get. I'm sure something like that, but. None of it's public, so we'll never really know. Really? This is what you wanted to start on? Is Lance Stroll's wrist? <laughs> well, from first and foremost, I just wanted to, uh, I guess, segue into, you know, you like to characterize me as some sort of great conspiracy theorist, and I think this gives rise to, to one as well. I mean, there's some questions of whether or not Stroll really deserves his seat. The valuations in F1 teams are, are rising, um, and yet Aston Martin is still carrying the weight of a, a, a branded paid driver, um, in the, the CEO and our owner's son. So you think there was maybe a, you know, a corporate operative daddy stroll couldn't quite bear to break the news to his son and, and kind of had to find an end around, to introduce the F2 champion into a, a an F1 seat. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I don't know why you're well, laughing. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I don't really know how you want me to respond to that. <laughs> That's why. No. In short, uh, I think that Lance will have the seat as long as his dad owns the team. But as you'll hear later in the podcast, and when we get to our crazy predictions, I believe might be a shorter period of time than, than most may think. Hmm. Interesting foreshadowing. All right. Well, let's actually get to some serious news that has some legitimate impact on the sport overall. Um, a lot of news in the off season surrounding, you know, new teams entering as well as new partners entering with existing teams. Uh, so love to just run down the list here and get your take on, on sort of the latest 
the evolution of what the grid will look like, you know, in the years ahead. I mean, a lot of interest first and foremost around Andretti trying to introduce a brand new team into the sport, um, potentially with partner GM or more specifically branded as Cadillac. Uh, but throughout the course of that team seeking higher buy-ins, you know, previously set at a price of around $200 million, now looking at potentially triple that. Uh, and simultaneously, a little bit of perspective being shared that, you know, maybe Andretti is being a little bit too vocal about how things are playing out, you know, voicing his frustration around the politics of F1, uh, you know, that sort of stereotypical, you know, American boisterousness versus the very restrained and, and politically conscious, uh, you know, more of a British and European sentiment. So what's your take on the whole Andretti saga and the fairness of whether or not you think it's right for the teams to sort of be demanding this higher price and, and what is it, where do his chances stand in terms of introducing a, a net new team to the grid in the coming, you know, two to three years? I mean, I think Andretti's chances are definitely better if he acquires an existing team uh, and gets around the anti-dilution, you know, entry fee. Uh, you know, which would bring something like Alpha Tower into the equation, but that's a such a big if. Like, you just don't know, especially with the Salba deal being locked up by Audi. You know, unless Doralton tries to tender Williams, which I guess could happen, or Haas. Like, I, it seems to me that becoming an eleventh team is probably five times harder than acquiring an existing team. So that to me is Andretti's only shot. I think to become an eleventh team. If it's an American company, it's probably going to have to be an OEM because that's the only that's the only type of entity that has the capital to 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 come overcome that type of anti dilution mm. and get the backing of existing teams because they want to all diversify the number of engine manufacturers in the sport anyway. So yeah. you know, Mercedes is going to be more likely to support a fully a full throated all in bid from GM, right? If GM's going to bring an engine and everything, so. Um, yeah, I don't like Andretti's chances of becoming an 11th team at this point, especially given the rumors you mentioned about the anti-dilution thing being multiplied, for sure. Um, I, I want them to, but I it seems like it's they're they're getting a bit weary. So, what is your take on the on the changing goalpost in terms of the the buy-in required going up from 200 to 600 million? I get, I get for me the thought is I'm shocked that there was ever even sort of a a fixed number that would not be constantly changing anyway per some sort of like annual revaluation of the, the broader enterprise. So, I mean, do you think there's any sort of like foul play or, or anything else at hand there? Or do you think it's just the skyrocketing valuation of the sport overall? I mean, it goes to show that the balance of power in F1 relative to other professional leagues is more skewed towards the individual teams than it is towards the governing body itself. Otherwise, you know, if it's like the NFL, the NFL is like the perfect example of an of yeah. a of a very centrally powered and controlled professional league. And like when they decided they wanted to do team expansion, it was totally up to them. I'm sure the owners voted on certain components of it, but like I can't imagine like if anything, there were incentives for cities to participate probably than there were entry fees and a bidding war. So, but there you also um, see a bit of a politicization of, of who gets well, in and who doesn't right in terms of for being sure. allowed in the, in the club more broadly. But, and so I always wonder, is it purely a financial thing or is it also a, well, a personal brand identity 
you know, evaluation as well, or, or a mix of both? I think it's both, but also F1 just has some practical caps on the capacity of cars in a single race as well, right? So, like, yeah. they're trying to protect that to some degree, too. Um, personally, though, I don't know that I have a huge problem with it because I think that there is some novelty in the number of drivers being capped at 20 and the exclusivity of it, I think actually does create more draw to the sport than it might be if let's say that was a moving target and maybe went up to like 30. I think it'd be harder to the, the continuity of teams and drivers brings a lot of value to the sport. In other words. Um, and I think that shines through in the way storytelling occurs within the sport through things like drive to survive. Um, so there's a risk to some of that gets diluted as well. Well, I think that's one of the big pros that I have heard is introducing additional drivers and personalities on the grid, right? But I, I'm with you. I think it becomes challenging logistically on how do you manage that. I mean, qualifying is already a nightmare yeah. on a lot of tracks. I think it, by and large, you probably have steams starting at the bottom of the grid. And so then you get instances where you got underperforming cars call, causing yellow flags and and greatly disrupting the sort of outcomes of pivotal races in a season. And so I think you just get more of that with more introductions of lower tier teams. And, and so to your point of like the anti-dilution as well as having sort of an intellectual base that you're building on leads to probably more of the acquisitions becoming the, the norm rather than the new introductions. Um, I also think what you'll see with drivers as well is you probably see a blurring of the lines between what seem to be definitive first and second drivers these days, right? If you're talking about sort of a growing pool of talent, there's less and less need for first and second drivers on every team. And why do you not have situations like what you might have this year with McLaren and, you know, a Norris and a Piastri, two top tier talents? Like, I think you would just see that be maybe the more universal dynamic than, you know, 10 great drivers and 10 okay drivers, right? I think that the overall caliber of the 20 that there are, would probably just continue to to elevate. Yeah, it's interesting. Huh? Let's see. I, I hope so, but there's still always going to be politics in the sport. And once Lance Stroll, Lawrence Stroll falls, there'll be another guy like him probably crop up right behind him, you know? Um, so. Well, so Andretti aside, an introduction of new teams, I think we saw a lot of, of shifting sands on the Red Bull front in the off season. And, you know, Red Bull... As a recap, you know, previous partner with engine supplier Honda bought the intellectual capital, you know, being their own engine provider. I mean, they, with Honda throughout their history, have had five different engine suppliers, I believe. And so, you know, with the waffling of Honda, saw an opportunity for them to control their own destiny a little bit more uh, and, and buy the intellectual property from Honda. And then with the success of their their world championship winning season, you know, Honda's obviously like, well, crap, we made a, a big mistake there. And so now trying to find their place a little bit back, at least until 2026. But and the thinking was big deal, Red Bull, Porsche, that broke down. And now with Ford um, replacing their position, just what's your perspective on kind of that whole evolution from a a corporate strategy, corporate culture fit um, with Red Bull and with F1 overall? Uh, I think this is a corporate strategy masterclass by Red Bull personally. Um, because let's think about it. Like, what have they wanted all along? Well, once they decided, they, they, they reached the path in the road 
or the split in the road with Honda when Honda was withdrawing, where it was basically like, okay, well, I can figure out how to make my own engines, or I can go to Ferrari or go back to Renault. I certainly can't go to Mercedes. So, like, both of those, two of those are really bad options between Ferrari and Renault, because we've ever been down the Renault train before. So, I guess if I'm serious, then I got to decide I'm really serious. I'll go build a factory and figure out how to make my own engines. I think they went after that in earnest, believed they could pull it off by 2026 with the full internal combustion hybrid combo and own all the IP. And then I think realized as they got deeper into that, that they would have, especially with the rising popularity of the sport, a a pool of interested partners. And I think that they realized through that they could be picky in what they would gain as an entity and what they'd have to give up through that partnership. And I think what they decided is like, look, we're putting up all the capital as a damn energy drink company to build this factory. We're not going to let another OEM like Porsche come in, buy a majority stake in it, and then control the intellectual property of the entire engine production. Like that conceptually just doesn't make great sense. And so I think they decided we're going to put the, like the Red Bull board's going to approve a package to put down the capital to build this factory. We're going to own the intellectual property of this engine. And they found a partner in Ford who is okay with that and wants to contribute a specific part of the technology that they think that they bring a lot of expertise in and let Red Bull drive the strategic ship in the technical direction of the engine overall, which is what they want. Um, I think it's a dream partnership. And the last time Ford was in the F1 game as an engine supplier, they did it through Cosworth, who, yeah, well, they were a British company, but they were owned by Ford, was like the third most successful F1 engine in history. So there's precedent for them... Uh, through partners and directly building and contributing to really, really, really good race engines. Well, and I believe their own team also was ultimately sold to Re- what became Red Bull. Well, so Cosworth was an engine supplier, but Ford then decided to become a full OEM mm-hmm. through through Jaguar. Yep. And they bought Jackie Stewart's race team, which was like a lower mid-tier team, and then tried to revamp it. it took them like eight years. They didn't go anywhere. Then they sold that to Red Bull. But have you? Do you ever listen to Beyond the Grid, like oh, yeah. Tom Clarkson's? Like, did you listen to the Jackie Stewart episode that came no. out over the off season? It was so good, man. I would so highly suggest it. He jokes about whenever he goes to meet with Christian Horner, he goes into Milton Keynes and walks into his office and says, "What are you doing in my office?" To Christian Horner because that was the original site of Jackie Stewart Racing before it was Jaguar, before it was Red Bull. So it's like this full circle thing. So it makes it it makes historical sense for Red Bull, it makes strategic sense. I'm personally very excited for an American company to have their name on the side of the team that I love. Um I I think it's a slam dunk. I really don't see a lot of downside, I guess is the short of it. Other than the god awful car introduction promo video with the most cringy Ford CEO I've ever seen. <laughs> Probably since Henry Ford himself who was outrageously racist. But <laughs> anyway, what are your thoughts? So, just in terms of the the Porsche perspective, like, because control was a a big driving factor in the decision to back away from the deal. But yeah, did those terms change at some point in which Porsche was seeking a greater share of ownership? Or do you think the the broader, like, do you think that those potential terms were set up much earlier? And then what changed was the landscape of their success in 2021 and them sort of reconsidering how much of this highly successful business decision they actually wanted to to give up like why did that break down over the the relative ownership i genuinely think that that 
it's I, I look at it primarily through the framework of I don't think Red Bull has ever felt like they've had to have a partner. Like I I and, and if you think about it from a negotiate like what's the best way to enter a negotiate enter into a negotiation with like limited urgency and not critical need. You're meaning like post Honda as they yeah. as they made the decision to like go their own way. Post that they were in a commanding position. From I think that they cast a strategic vision that said we are prepared to do this alone and we will be by 2026. And so therefore any additional partnership that came unexpectedly after that was basically like as icing on the cake. And so they were pick and choosing. Okay. So if we are going to outsource any of these engine components to a strategic partner, who's going to contribute the hybrid unit, which tends to be the most complex and require the most kind of accumulated years of research like Ford will probably make the most sense to plug into something like that because of everything they do on the commercial side and all the technology they already have and can bring to that equation. So great. But we feel like we can literally do everything else and manage the supply chain of the engine itself. So why would we give up majority ownership? I, I don't think that they were ever in a place where they thought Porsche was going to give them that and they broke and it broke down. I think they probably never put it on the table and they just realized when they got through the negotiation that Porsche wasn't going to give on something like that. And they just mm-hmm. couldn't see eye to eye. But that that partnership was probably so enticing, you know, at a top line level that it was kind of hard to not engage in at least talks. But to me, my again, the way I view it is I just don't think Red Bull has ever felt that they had to have a partner because I think they have always felt like they could do it by themselves. And so they just have never needed to give away much or felt like they should. Yep. Well, and from a, so you talked about it from a Red Bull perspective, the, the attractiveness, but I I think it's fascinating from a Ford perspective and just further highlights sort of the, the short sightedness in the, the Honda thinking, because from a Ford perspective, right, a history in F1 and also just given their, the pivot in their corporate direction, right. Doing away with sort of the, the small compact size car, either focusing on this brand of like, we make Mustangs. And now a strong pivot into obviously commercial and trucks, as well as electric vehicles, so much so that they they borrowed the design inspiration of the Mustang for the Mach, which as a Mustang enthusiast, I think was a super smart play to create a Mustang inspired SUV, even so electric. But I think, so there's the electric component, right? And the 2026 regulations pushing more on an emphasis on sort of the electrical component of the engine, but also the synthetic sort of renewable fuels. And I think more and more what you see is, oh, Honda was so focused on electric, on electric. But I think the idea that like electric will be the singular and predominant like form of vehicle in the near future is just short-sighted. And and more so what you're seeing is if anything, they're going to continue to be energy alternatives and the sort of hybrid hybrid engine because from the from the lithium to the cobalt to the energy grid requirements to support a hundred percent electric vehicle economy in a country in particular like the United States, it just it becomes hard to see where the math finally works out for that. And so I think Ford's super smart to lean into both the electrification, but also like the the synthetic fuels and the potential innovation 100%. that'll that'll come there. So I, I think a great move for them. And it also, you know, while they have the commercial side, the the hot brand is still the Mustang. And so then to be able to emphasize that performance component uh, only puts them in a better sort of brand branding position. So I think a great move from them as well. Yep. Agreed. All right. Moving on from new teams, team introductions. I think I want to move to some other more uh, 
more cultural, political aspect of the off-season news, which was the 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 speech police coming into Formula One. So if you recall recent years, lots of political activism, I think largely driven by the likes of, of Vettel and, and Hamilton. Um, and now in the off-season, you know, word coming out of a desire to restrict the speech of the athletes or the drivers during, you know, race events, largely representing, you know, both verbal as well as like visual speech. So those things like shirts and helmets in so much as they, they ask for a, a four week lead time for you to submit your approval of any form of political speech that you would like to engage in. Um, and you know, you know, the, the speed of the news cycle and the fact that by the time four weeks passes, we're on to some other sort of global geopolitical event. But what's your take on, on this decision uh, by formula one to, to sort of implement this speech neutrality rule, both from, I guess, a business and, and sort of global brand perspective, but then also just from your views as a, as an individual fan. I struggle to understand what could have possibly been motivating them, to be honest with you. Um, because I really don't see what, like, it's got nothing but negative PR value. Like, nobody's talking fondly about this. And I find it incredibly unlikely that most of the drivers are going to give a shit. And none of the drivers are going to give a shit with Lewis Hamilton still on the grid. I can tell you that much. Because people will follow his example, and Lewis definitely is not going to follow the like he's not going to follow the rules, and he's not going to care, and he's going to dare him to do something about it. And if they do do something about it, he's going to make it look even worse for him. So it, it's it's an arbitrary rule that is going to be impossible to enforce. I have absolutely no idea what they thought this could possibly yield. That's my honest reaction. Well, and in terms of the motivation, I, I think it goes back to a lot of the questions that you saw last season, I mean, both from the race in Saudi Arabia to sort of the the broader sort of cultural environment in the Middle East and, and the stances that different drivers take there from gay rights to, you know, women's rights. And so I think there's just this, this and obviously there is a lot of money in the sport, both from the money that they've uh, provided to host preseason testing and the final race of the year, you know, Saudi Aramco being a massive sponsor throughout numerous tracks. And so I I think they're trying to create a balance between all of their markets and and not ostracize any of their markets. But to your point, I I don't think that's a a fight that you you can win. Albeit, I don't know that that many of the drivers on the grid actually care because let's be honest, how many of them were like really highly vocal about any, any geopolitical, cultural, you know, issues beyond Hamilton and Vettel. Yeah. I mean, it was Vettel and it was Vettel last year. It's just Lewis. Yeah. But, but again, you aren't going to win against Lewis. I mean, they already tried this in sampling with like the jewelry, you know, requirements and that was shot down incredibly quickly. Totally blew up in their face. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, even if it's just, I hear your point, but even if it's just Lewis, it doesn't matter. It's Lewis. Yeah. And, and if there's an issue meaningful enough and relevant enough for him to go out of his way to make a point about other drivers are going to follow his lead 
for the most part, I think, except for the, you know, for the Verstappens and the Alonzos who are like the most apolitical people ever. Sure. But like, there's other drivers that are more socially minded, even if they're not as proactively outspoken. So I, I just, to your point about F1 appealing to its constituents, it feels like with this decision, they've clearly alienated the large majority of the beliefs of their European and American markets. So like, what constituents are they appealing to? Is it all like the Middle Eastern constituents? I think it's that. I think it's the idea of like the sort of prisoner's dilemma of like, well, if it's just not being proactively vocal about something versus not being, you know, explicitly offended, then I think they'd say, well, we'd rather not offend the people than not worry about the unmeasurable desire to speak out on like hypothetical events that may or may not happen in the course of a season, you know? So I think they try to pick the lesser of two evils. Cause I don't know that that's going to turn off. Are, are, they, are you really going to turn off the sport because a driver isn't hugely vocal about some sort of, um, you know, headline issue? I agree with that. If the question is about F1 making statements as an entity, in other words, like the, like, a lot of the stuff that they were doing corporately in response to Black Lives Matter, like last year, two year, two years ago, really. Like, if that's the question, then I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. But the question's not that. The question's just simply, what are drivers allowed to say or not allowed to say? And on that one, to me, like, I, I think you're damned if you do, in any way, shape, or form, have a position to try and restrict speech. Like, the easiest out from a PR standpoint when a driver goes out of bounds and says something politically that you don't agree with is just like, it's their personal opinion. Like, how hard is that to sell corporately to all of your F, like, F1 sponsors? Like, I, you know, like Lewis says something that's like really, really contrary to like traditional Muslim values. Like, if, if you can't keep an Aramco sponsorship as a result of that, because you can't just explain the fact that it's Lewis's personal beliefs. Like, it just doesn't seem that hard. Like, I I get it if it's a statement from F1 about a particular social issue and why they would want to be very apolitical there, and uniquely so, as a very global entity. But, man, driver speech, that doesn't square for me. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point, right? It's a contrast between when you look at, in the U.S., the major sports leagues. I mean, there's universal representation of whatever message they choose, like on the field, for example. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's very visible. Whereas to your point, the de- delineation between F1 as an entity teams and then drivers themselves. I would say the NBA is not universally anti-China. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I mean, they pick and choose the <laughs> issues of, of relevance, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and look, from a pure fan perspective, I think one of the fascinating things about, Formula One is the fact that you have 20 very distinct or you could have 20 very distinct driver personalities. Now, I think, unfortunately, from a viewer perspective, that gets washed out a lot with sort of everyone trying to tow the, you know, the pre-approved PR lines. But I think, you know, Alonzo hits on this within, you know, his own views and interviews and things of like, he realized that that there's different personas in the sports from protagonists to antagonists and everything in between. And I think he leans into that. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the sport. You know, why I like Red Bull was because Max was sort of this very vocal, candid perspective in light of all of that sort of uh, corporate speak. And I think 
to your point, they should be willing to lean into that. And it really should be probably governed more at the team level and say, team by team, 100%. what are you comfortable with your drivers representing your teams and your team's brands? And then going from there, because that allows, I think, the unique representation of all sorts of different fan bases to choose who they like and why and creates a, a sort of a deeper engagement with those drivers and with those specific teams. Yeah. They have a financial obligation to control things like media rights for individual drivers. Totally understand things like that. But speech, you got nothing, you got nothing to gain. I, I just, I don't, I don't see it. I well, and I'm, you know, you know, I'm a Packers fan. And so I feel like spoiled where you have Pat McAfee and Aaron Rodgers on a weekly basis, you know, talking about whatever they want for an hour, but you know, a week. And so I think to have something similar in F1 can only lead to sort of long-term success. Cause I think you've seen the success by which, you know, that show has, has grown as a result of that type of dynamic. So fully agree, fully agree. All right. Now let's, uh, I think we've covered off uh, a lot of the, the big issues in the off season. What do you say we move a little bit more to the teams themselves? Let's do it, man. All right. Well, you know, I know we started off with the, the critical topic of Lance Stroll. I think as we talk about teams, we have to talk about the, the most central and important aspect of the teams and what will be their season long performance. And that is their liveries. Heck yeah. Everyone's favorite subject. I came with a loaded gun on this one. I, I know you did. If there's a man who, who values style over substance, it's you. (laughs) And so I am looking forward to your perspective here. Uh, (laughs) Let's keep it simple. Let's uh, the best and worst dressed style. So who do you have as your, your top liveries this year? And then who do you have as your worst? Can we do best, worst, and then a most improved relative to last season? I want to give somebody credit, even though they're not objectively best. Only because I'm going to completely disagree with you. Yes. Okay. All right. So best, um, I I couldn't pick one. I had to pick two. First, with the leadoff hitter, Mercedes in black again is phenomenal. I am totally in love with it. I don't care how slow the car is. Uh, I think that thing is sexy as hell in, bl- in black and they need to just abandon and retire the silver arrows as a part of their history and never go back. Not because that looked bad, but this just looks nasty with the green Patronus accent, the highlighter yellow driver numbers popping even more than they did last year with some of the green coming in. Uh, and I also love how it kind of blinds the lines between where's the carbon unpainted carbon and where's the car. Like I, I love it. So that's one. And then two, and I think we're going to disagree on this. I love the, the Alfa Romeo livery. I, and that you're seeing a theme here with the black. Uh, I, it was a, it was a modest shift from the white and red last year, but I think it went a long, long way. Still not a fan of the Italian flag on the back of the rear wing. Was hoping to see that go away. I'm sure Audi will get rid of it. So it stays numbered, but I think that the new black-red combo and what they've done to their racing suits is all just a massive improvement. To be fair, I actually thought that was going to be your most improved livery year over year. So no. maybe I, I, I will disagree with you on the alpha in a moment, but uh, I'm curious now what your what your most improved was. But first, let's let's. Uh, I, I totally agree on the Mercedes bit. I think um, I think it had an, a particularly nice flair when they were just dominating the sport because it gave that sort of like evil empire vibe. Um, and I think, you know, they tried to pivot back to their roots, maybe a little bit more, um, 
humble in what they expected to achieve in that year. And, and maybe it's a sign of growing confidence in the Mercedes garage that they went, they went back to the black. Well, you know what they say, dress for the job you want, not the one you have. So I don't think they're going to be the embodiment of the evil empire with their car performance, but maybe they'll get there again. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's hear, um, let's hear about your worst, uh, your worst livery. I mean, McLaren, it takes the cake here. And I think you're going to hear McLaren's name come up it, along with the word worst a lot today. And also this season in general, uh, it's dark days are ahead. They did not change the livery at all. All they did was add those <laughs> fucking tacky electronic billboard sponsorship things that <laughs> like they're the digital screens. <laughs> they're like cutting back on paint so they could save weight and then adding like LED strips so they can flash more sponsors up. It's an absolute, it's a joke. Like it's a, just an absolute Well, in testing, joke. it just seemed like a way for them to show different versions of Google Chrome branding. Too like wasn't it just like cycling through Chrome like the brand and then the name and then the logo like what's the what's the whole point? This doesn't have anything to do with the livery, but the fact that they blurred out parts of the side pods and the floor during like their pre like their <laughs> their, <laughs> their car reveal as if they had something to hide at first I thought but then after they revealed it I was like they weren't hiding any like engineering they were just like probably hiding a terrible paint job you know and just like saving us all from it for another couple weeks That's just like, or it was oh. just like a low resolution photo they took and we're like uh, yeah I don't <laughs> yeah, think it's intentional whatever. yeah, yeah. It speaks to uh, maybe the a more prevailing trend in the quality in, in McLaren's garage um, they are bottom of the barrel, and and I mean b- like by a significant margin. I will take the Williams Duracell battery, but like repeat it over their entire livery before I will take the McLaren car. <laughs> I was gonna say I think that's at least a creative bit of branding. I mean, there's just no no inspiration in the in the McLaren side whatsoever. Go back to the Golf. Like, did you learn anything from that one marketing event where everybody embraced the golf? Like, go back to the golf. Well, that's just characteristic of their, like, complete downtrend is, like, golf's not even a sponsor anymore. So they they lost that whole that whole superior livery anyway. I know. Well, on my side, at least, I, I have to say, and I think this probably goes just beyond the livery, but to the, the collective sort of brand identity, all of the gear, I, I think, along with Mercedes... Aston Martin has to be to be right up there. I mean, the strong and striking green, I think the green accent provides a nice um a nice addition. I think it pairs well with any sort of gr- uh, black reduction on paint that they introduce as well. And so I, I think they just have a good look going on. And I think given as many teams that are cutting back so severely on on colored liveries, I think it's just I'll, I'll take pretty much any broadly colored car that that I can on the grid. So I think uh, props to them and and, um, you know, might be. Might be supported by a strong car as well, but time will tell. Um, Hard to disagree with any of those takes, (laughs) but go on. Well, and and to that point, uh, let's get to some disagreement. I have to say, I think Alfa Romeo is just the the most boring livery on the grid, at least when it was like a red and white it sort of popped a little bit more, but now it's like mostly black with like this, the late, I feel like the, just the big red block on the back half of the car just looks even lazier now that the rest of it is just carbon fiber. Um, also just the, the layout that they have on all of like the sponsors name, like steak, three sides on the side pod and then cursive with Alfa Romeo. And yeah, then the steak, steak is a bit over it. 
bit randomly placed. I agree. It's all over. And then on top of that, just the Alfa Romeo logo just doesn't look good at high speed. It's just kind of a, a blur any angle you look at it. And so it's really hard to translate into like a nice feature like the Mercedes logo or the Aston Martin logo. And you can't really make the Alfa Romeo logo like massive on the side the same way you have, uh, you know, the Red Bull logo. And so they're just in a tough spot all around. So that's by far my my least favorite one. I, what about, okay, what about gloss versus matte paint? Like they are one of the glossier paint jobs on the grid and I actually quite like it. I have no, I have no opinion on gloss right. versus well. matte to be frank with you. I mean, if I... I think by and large, probably gloss, you know, looks more striking. But at the same time, I think the I think the Red Bull and, and Alpha cars look cool in in matte. I just wish, especially on the AlphaTari side of things, I feel like they could do so many different like variations of their simple well, what was a two tone design, um, but they don't. And so I, I feel like AlphaTari can have the coolest special liveries, and and unfortunately. You know, you talked about most improved livery. I'm going to go the opposite way, uh, given my generally pessimistic nature. And I think the the least improved livery on the grid had to be the the Alphatari. I mean, it. I didn't love what they had, I agree with that. but it was a thing. And then just the introduction of this, the the they ruined it. The red, the aggressive Orlean, Orlen, uh, red all over the car. I think just creates this like horrible kind of design discontinuity. So I, I think they're my least improved uh, livery on the grid. I don't disagree with that at all. And as you'll, as you'll soon get to, they might also be the, one of the least improved cars on the grid in terms of performance as well. Um, and with that, let's segue into less important, but you know, it, it, it needs to be covered. The car, the actual car launches themselves, testing and preseason predictions. Uh, let's start with just, Overall, what you've observed from the, you know, the three days of testings and the aftermath since that, you know, what were your top takeaways from car launches, you know, updated designs, and then the performance in testing itself? I have a couple headlines. Uh, one is maybe a more obvious statement if you've been reading the headlines, which is McLaren's in trouble <laughs> again, maybe in worse trouble than we imagined they were. And we thought they were already in trouble. Uh, Red Bull's very, very good and maybe better than we thought they were. And they, we already thought they were going to be pretty good. Uh, I, I think Ferrari had a decent enough week, but I'm, I recognize their broad optimism as a team and you can hear it in the driver's voices, but I'm skeptical. It's not just typical Italian optimism. So I don't really know if they're going anywhere. I anyway, we'll get to the actual preseason predictions. And then I think the last observation I have is um well, I you know what? I came in here ready to throw shade at Bahrain as an actual testing location. Ah, fuck it. I'm going to do it anyway. I especially <laughs> now that they've removed the last chicane. Did you see this news that they removed the last chicane in Barcelona? I think we got to go back, man. I think we got to go back. That track's been invigorated, got new life. Um, I don't know. Maybe a part of it's just sympathy for me for the drivers having to spend a whole nother week before the first race in a completely different part of the world. I think it'd make more sense to me if testing was somewhere in Europe personally and might make more logistical sense for the teams. So don't really understand why it's in Bahrain. That track's never really done anything for me in particular, to be totally honest. Well, Given your take on uh, offensive speech in, in other parts of the world, I'm not surprised that you'd uh, 
you'd give a plug for your West o- Western centrism and, and where testing should take place. So, you know, par for the course, maybe a nice trend we'll see here uh, develop throughout the year. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll see on Spain. I, I think, yes, good introduction on the the um, removal of the chicane. I think given like the broader logistics of of kind of the early season, Bahrain where it is, and I'm not sure Spain's ponying up the dollars to host testing uh probably and, not and sort of two plus two plus weeks of of action in bahrain so um interesting okay well i from can, yeah can i share one more thing before you yes, dive please. into your takeaways honestly my favorite part of the coverage and i caught this through youtube clips was the fake race starts that they would overly dramatize on the broadcast did you see any of those no i missed those <laughs> oh man there was <laughs> there were a couple moments where Either four or five cars got on the grid and did a simultaneous race start, but like not all of them went at the same time, or they all got in a line and appeared to have like a little DRS train in this. Like moments where they appeared to be racing on the track, and the guys in the broadcast booth, who by the way, that is the most thankless job doing the broadcast for F1 testing. They were so bored that they like started overly dramatizing like what was happening as if it was an actual race. It's hilarious. Like the, if there's anything worth rewatching, it was those clips. Now, was that the Sky Team or was yes. that the, the F1 no, TV? No, it was the Sky, it was the Sky Team. Yeah, it was the Sky Team. I don't remember who it was. One of them was uh, Martin Brundle. And Ted Kravitz was in the booth with him and about pissed his pants laughing. Okay. It was, okay. It was hysterical. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you, were, I'm glad you said that because, you know, from the testing uh, coverage itself, I think one of my favorite parts was it was the F1, it was the F1 crew. You know, so it's got like Jolyn Palmer, who's, you know, X driver and then, you know, Sam Collins and basically a bunch of geeks who, you know, didn't drive, were in journalism, uh, you know, and then Jolyn. But, you know, of course, Palmer had a, a brief career in F1 and in so many other broadcasts, you pick up on this like subtle, um, you know, he's just not happy to be like a broadcaster. Like he's, he still wishes he was a driver, of course. And, and in this testing in particular they like replayed a, a qualifying lap of palmer and palmer like narrated his own lap and of course <laughs> i don't know that he hit like a single apex the entire <laughs> the entire lap but he like conveyed it as though it was like a pretty good lap with only maybe minor misses here and there and so just hearing him like convey his own uh you know i, I think just his own self-deprecation but also paired against the idea that like he's still way more badass than everybody else in the booth. And so I think just their, their ability to both lean into like him be self-deprecating, but then play off of them, you know, as the, the geeks and the journalists in the sport, I think is like, they found their, their sweet spot with that, with that dynamic. Um, I like that. I'm looking forward to watching more of their coverage this year. Well, I've, I've fully pivoted. I think you're on to it. I know I'm, I'm off sky. So I'm glad you, you keep at least a toe in that cesspool for us. (laughs) Um, beyond coverage, I I think my big takeaways this year were right. You had a rule change last year. You're expecting, you know, massive new designs, a huge amount of uncertainty. And I think what I, what I love about this year in particular is you still see three very distinct aero philosophies between Red Bull, Ferrari, and Mercedes. And then I think you saw a, a reasonable amount of evolution within at least a couple of, of teams in particular. And I would pick on, you know, Alfa Romeo and then even more so 
Aston Martin, right? Big so you time. have, and where Aston Martin is really, it seems pursuing this like extreme hybrid design blending sort of both Red Bull and Ferrari designs, right? Like the, the, the side profile and the bottom of the side pod being much more, you know, in the air intake being much more Red Bull inspired, but then the, the sort of deep grooves in the top of the side pods, not only sort of adopting a red, a Ferrari design, but then also like taking it to an extreme. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what success they actually have. Um, as a result of that. And then meanwhile, you have Mercedes, who's still totally doing something completely distinct themselves that no other team is trying to even like pull elements from with the, but then also seeing them deviate a little bit while they said, oh no, we're still sticking with the side pod design. I think you've seen more, you know, a larger side pod, it's more squared. And I know you, you pick on me for saying this, but I think if anything, it's actually moved even closer into like the design of you know, an F-22 jet, right? You have very squared yes, air yes, intakes. Yes, intakes look you, more you have, And now on the yes, top of yes. the side pod, you have those like really pronounced grooves along the engine to, for cooling as well as airflow direction. And so- how many, how many times have you seen Top Gun Maverick? I mean- geez. Oh, dude, I watch I watch highlights at least every third day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> just, just search Maverick success run, you know? <laughs> Proving to the young guns it can be done. Um, anywho, moving on. And then I think I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, touch on the evolution of tires for this season. So, you know, I think a lot of frustration, honestly, with the weight of the new cars and partially the tire designs being, you know, more enduring than people would probably like. Not as many two-stop races. And I think generally just the cars having a lot of understeer. And I think both from like a tire construction design introducing new compounds both as like c1 but also wet weather tires um and i think that they coupled they introduced a new wet weather compound i missed that i think that's yeah i think that i can't remember if it's with like wet or intermediate but they're trying to have that be you know improved performance and i think there's also potentially talk of some body packages as well that might improve racing i mean we talked about this a little bit if you can cut down spray how much better would the racing be? So you're already getting performance loss. Right? Well, gotta, like, put some like mud flaps on the back. Of hell, them. Yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. They can have their own like little taglines, right? Uh, on the mud flaps. Put some truck nuts in between them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I think all that's really good. And I think you also see more cars with like the front wing being much more squared off than dropping down right at the nose cone. And I think you see a lot of that trying to increase, you know, how much the car's are on the nose, right? A little, I think you see it in testing a lot more oversteer with the cars. So I, I think they're, they're getting a little bit more nimble with both the tires as well as with the, with the car design and lower weight. So I, I think it should be, I'm excited for, for that to return a little bit where the cars felt awfully sluggish and, and kind of slow into turns in the past season. The potential for more two-stop races is also I think a net positive. It's super exciting. Sustainability be damned, but. Oh yeah. Soft <laughs> tires, put them through the recycling bin, right? Um, but it's <laughs> yeah. interesting you say that because in one of the interviews with the, you know, Mario Isola, the, the kind of Pirelli representative that they interview all the time, you know, he expect in day three, I believe he expressed a, a and concurred with uh, Crofty's desire for more two-stop races as well. And he said, yeah, we'd actually like to do that as well. We think it's better racing. And now that they'll actually have well, a band makes of six. Money. Well, 
Well, and now that they'll have a band of six, I'm not sure what the compensation model is. It's I mean, more I... tires, man. More tires are better than less More tires, tires more money. We're good. <laughs> um, but he actually talked about the fact that now that they have six tire compounds, they would actually entertain skipping tires within what they would put forth in a race. If given the gaps in the tire performance, they actually thought it would lead to more dynamic strategies rather than everybody converging on maybe a single strategy. Wait, wait, wait. So you're saying they would maybe for a race, they would have C2, C3 and C5? Exactly. Yep. Or C0, C2 and C3. Yeah. So we'll see if they actually do that. Um, But yeah, if it led to strategic diversity in the races, uh, it would just lead to more Ferrari headaches and and more uh, cannon fodder for this show. So I'm, I'm excited for that. My, I, I'm happy that it seems like your opta outlook on Pirelli is relatively positive, but I'm perpetually going to view them as like the placeholder, the kick, like the kicking holder on the football team, and that like nobody gives a shit about you unless you screw up, and then you're just the guy at the bottom of the hill just catching all the shit. So for that, I feel sorry for them. Well, and it is constantly like the 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 great unknown, right? That you know people look at the cars and the engines and the brands and all this stuff, but like. The tires are the thing making the contact with the road and, you know, and qualifying and race management. It's all about the tires. And so that's my my whole objective on this show is to give the tire people the love that they that they deserve. Give the give the rubber engineers a little uh, a little shout out here and there. It's a flag you you bear admirably. So good on you. All right. With the uh, the top takeaways aside, let's move into team predictions uh, for 2023 and and we'll go top to bottom in order of 2022 constructor standings give us a bit of an opportunity to to maybe see where we think this year's cars will deviate from last year's performance uh let's let's kick it off with my favorite team and the team that you disowned last season uh red bull where do you think they're going to finish the year okay (laughs) (laughs) red bull is still very much my team so let me just state the they make make the record clear on that one. Um, I'm just I, as I was about to introduce my my pick. I mean, I, so I'll spoiler alert. I very much think that Red Bull is going to be first. I think the question in my mind is: Are they going to win by more in constructors' standings than they did last year? Is is I think the interesting debate. And you know, last year they won by 205 constructors' points, which is a pretty massive gap. I think that it, they've got a decent chance of extending that this year. That's how good I think they looked. They clearly have not sat on their hands. They've got that new undercut under the side pods. They've done some new stuff with the floor. Uh, they've still been busy. Saved weight. That's the big one, they right? Saved Reducing weight. chassis weight. It seems like the car is now fast in high-speed corners. It's fast in low-speed corners. It's not slow on the straight. Still... Seems reliable. I, it seems reliable. I, this team is dialed from a strategy standpoint. Obviously, everybody that hears this, because if you agree with me, especially, like we're just going to be seen as a bunch of homers. But I think there's a decent chance that we may be about to watch one of the most dominant team performances in any single season that F1 has seen in a while. I I think they look that good, like Mercedes turbo hybrid era prime type like evil empire type look. So. Well, and I think, I think from a Red Bull perspective, it's, it's certainly in the cards. I also think that 
it, it it comes down to what happens lower down on the grid, right? If out of the gate, Mercedes is comparable with Ferrari. Now they only finished 40 points apart, right? So that, that margin has to narrow, but that could narrow. And then I think if you get any other fourth team involved in that mix, that's taking away points from any other team, it's very well possible, right? Because you saw a massive sort of bifurcation between the top three and the rest of the grid last year. And so I think it's certainly a possibility between both Red Bull performance and what happens further down on the, on the grid. So are you going, uh, are you, are you planting your flag definitively Red Bull outscoring more than, uh, more than prior year? I think that they will have a bigger margin than constructors. Yeah, I do. All right. Nice. I'll take the under on that. Take the under. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, all right. I, I think I think we covered Red Bull well. Nothing really to to add there. Um, I think really it's Checo is the big the big question. I, I think he seemed comfortable out of the gate with a with a, a a car with a lot of understeer. If the car becomes a little bit more twitchy, more cases of oversteer, and that's the package that or that's the setup that extracts the most performance, and he's not comfortable with it, do they moderate that a little bit? And what does that mean for him? So I think a lot of that proposition falls on his shoulders as to whether or not he delivers on par or or even above where he was last year because if he ends in a in a strong um position ahead of of a ferrari driver as well then you know i i think that makes just the case that much stronger for red bull 100 percent. and i yeah i think he's a question mark if they have a question mark i mean we're talking about a guy that almost finished second in the driver's championship i mean comparatively yes i mean it is a small question mark mark. (laughs) yeah (laughs) in the in the broader scheme of things correct um all right so how about so red bull was first colin first again um let's move to ferrari finish second big early lead you know seemed like the favorites early on for constructors championship and drivers championship and then by the end quickly being caught by by Mercedes um and so where do you think where do you think I guess first off where do you think they start the season relative to the other teams and then ultimately where do you think they're they're going to finish in in the constructors constructor standings I think they're in second at the summer break but they're third by the end of the year mm. what about you okay so you're you're giving them summer break again to to yep. maintain a lead I'm gonna repeat my mid-season prediction last year yeah i'll take the under on that i think mercedes surpasses them into second place uh before before summer break yep i think the margins much closer start a year look i think ferrari no real um changes to their overall like car design it seems pretty static i I think much more of the focus has been on engine performance and reliability um but i think you'll see a similar characteristic characteristic of a car that seems like it has really high torque coming out of corners accelerates quickly but that has a risk of uh, a twitchy rear end and and potentially creating some accidents throughout the season not to mention sort of high high rear tire dag so i i think that'll continue to to hamper them uh this year and then i guess mercedes on that side i'm putting them at second pre-summer break because i, I think they just had such a such a lag in their ability to start optimizing their package, given the the extreme degree with which their car was porpoising, that the fact that they at least seem to have that sorted far better this year before the season starts, I think they just have a better 
mid-season development program. And, and you're going to see sort of one, I don't think the gap will be very measurable, if at all, right out of the gate. And so I, I, I think they're going to chip away at that and, and surpass Ferrari pretty quickly. I don't think that's a bad take. I, I um, yeah, I think I just I view it taking a little bit longer, but I agree. I've got Mercedes finishing second in the constructors. I think the evil empire inches its way a little bit further up the charts, but is still ultimately out of the gates way slower than Red Bull in a new development era, and they're not going to fully catch them yet. But not saying they never will, but not this season. Well, and that that in terms of question marks for each team, I think from my perspective, the big question mark for Ferrari comes to just their their overall race strategy and execution, right? And so <laughs> new yeah. new team principal comes in with you know at least ex- organizational management experience on multiple other teams, and and so I think you, you saw so many points lost to Leclerc last season especially in the first half of the season that just ruined their chances from like multiple positions lost along with engine issues, as well as driver errors. I mean, they threw so many points away that to your other question about just, does, does Red Bull lead by a farther margin? I think if Ferrari just doesn't throw as many points away, that's what keeps them ahead of Mercedes. That's what potentially keeps the gap tighter to Red Bull. We'll just see if they, they stay out of, out of their way. So I guess another question to you then is, you know, what's your, what's your estimated, let's do another over under on the, the, the possible number of positions lost due to just overt strategy and, and sort of race day execution errors. Positions in the constructors table. I would say no more so from like a driver perspective. So even if you pick like their top driver from a Leclerc perspective, like how many, how many positions in terms of like race finishes do you think he loses? Let me simplify this. Can we simplify this to like the number of races where Ferrari has like a documented strategy blunder? Because last year, okay, it was like, like clear, unadulterated mess up. Yeah, last year it was like five, right? Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. It had to have been at least five. I'd, I think it was I'd five, say, and then the rest were engine and and a couple of driver mistakes. I'd say, I think we're still going to see a solid two or three. Like, okay. it, it's so you think hard, it's an improvement? Yeah, I think they're going to be improved, but I don't think they're going to be on the par of, I don't think they're just going to wake up under a new leader and be on par with Mercedes and Red Bull from a race strategy standpoint. That seems a little bit unrealistic. They couldn't, they couldn't have fired everybody in the race strategy team. <laughs> <laughs> like they still gonna have some of those dudes, dudes around. Like I, yeah. Yeah. I guess I differ with you. Cause you, I think you re you had the sentiment that there's a lot of institutional knowledge in terms of the data infrastructure and how you analyze situations that it is actually a slower ship to change. Whereas from my perspective, it's like, should it be? You can't change your decision-making culture a little bit more nimbly than than you did previously. Empower a couple additional people who know how to who have the data already. Like have the race engineer to like have a position, stake, you know, and and make a decision and we'll deal with the consequences later. But it seemed like it was a bigger issue of like indecision rather than indecision that led to bad decisions rather than just quick bad decisions. Yeah. I mean, do you think that Ferrari has an equally robust like race command center to like Mercedes and Red Bull, like back in the factory with, you know, you've seen the videos of the rooms, like the Red Bull room where they've got the stadium style seating 
and all of the different displays up and they have all of these like offline engineers and support teams. I and mean, what do you think Ferrari has? You think they're just in like a wood paneled room in Marinello, <laughs> like three dudes with wine glasses, like making decisions. <laughs> I, I mean, no, I I'm just saying like, do you think it's as robust? Like, I don't know, maybe not. Like maybe they don't have as much real time infrastructure and in monitoring and races. Like maybe they've just, operated some of these intra-race decisions on tradition and judgment longer than some of the more modern teams. Maybe, but I, to them. maybe I just don't think the strategic blunders that they had last season needed a NASA style control room to like optimize the decision. I mean, it was like, you got your race leader out on hards. Everybody's pitting for softs. I don't know. Maybe we should like pit here. Right. It was just, yeah. they were just it's such just simple mistakes. Yeah, yeah. That it just seemed like a lack of confidence and their drivers and unwillingness to just put it in their hands. I'd say at this point, screw your, your, your strategy team. Just, just let Leclerc and signs make the decision from the track. And you'd probably be better off than, you know, how they went last year. I think I know we disagree with that. Totally backfire. God, that would totally backfire. It's easy for the drivers to look good in their discernment when Ferrari looks so bad, but it definitely should be the other way around. The team's always going to have better information. You'd like to think so. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> it's hard. to <laughs> God, the Monaco, the Monaco of the audio of Leclerc pulling into the pits. And they say, stay out, stay out. He's like, what? No, what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah. Is, oh. To me, that is like that. That clip is the embodiment of just their season. Like that was it. Well, that and then for me, it was the signs one where. Because I guess signs was on pole, they decided to pit him from second rather than leclerc from first and he was just like stop inventing guys like this is stupid like yeah what are we talking right. about here so yeah that to me was like it wasn't as much anger as just much like shock and <laughs> with just the fact of like what you're proposing so all right let's move on to uh the team that finished fourth in constructors last year alpine uh where do you have them where do you have them this year i have them down a notch in fifth Mm, uh, but this has less to do with pessimism on Alpine and more to do with optimism on the team that I do have in fourth, which is uh. not yet to be revealed. But um, in general, I think that they probably withheld a lot in testing. That seems to be the general sentiment. They maybe had their engine turned down. They were testing for a few things specifically. They've got some upgrades coming in even before Bahrain. And everybody's pretty optimistic on the trajectory they took out of last season. So put the mismanagement of driver politics and all the piastri stuff aside. I think most, uh, you know, if they can solve the reliability bug, most people are pretty bullish on their general trajectory. Um, and I am too. I'm just more bullish on another team that I think might jump them for fourth. But all in all, I think they had a great, they have a reason to be optimistic. About the car, but not, but not about their drivers. So a uh, question for you. So do you think relative to what could have been an Ocon and Alonso or Ocon and Piastri driver lineups, do you think they've taken a step back relative to both of those scenarios or one of those? Like where does the, the Ocon Gasly lineup rank in your mind? And I don't even know why I'm asking this question given the nationalistic fervor at play here. So I just, I guess I'm just curious to hear your response. These guys are both just eight and a half by 11 pieces of printer paper. It's just the most vanilla, average, uninteresting driver lineup on the grid. And these guys are both fine, serviceable drivers. They're not cr overly crashy. 
You know, they don't do a lot of really stupid stuff, but neither one of them's also, they're like Joe, you know, they're, I wouldn't even say they're Joe Flacco's. They're like, they're both like Jimmy Garoppolo's, you know, to the, like the utility. NFL. They're good enough. Yeah. They're just kind of just more guys, you know, like, yeah, you can bring them home to mom. Like they're nice enough, but like, they're just not going to get you out of bed in the morning and they're definitely not going to win you a championship. So. Sorry, well, and Jimmy I think. G. I think one of the most redeeming characteristics of Pierre Gasly last season was his relationship with, with Yuki. And I don't know that we're going to see such a, which was surprising. That was surprising. It was surprising. And I don't know that we're going to see such an endearing relationship with, with Ocon uh, this season, but I do think it'll be an interesting test with Gasly and how he looks relative to Ocon, right? Because you saw the side by side with Alonzo, which people are still, you know, infatuated with Alonzo and, and the potential that he has. And so, Gasly actually has to come in and deliver now. And so it'll be curious to see if it was just his frustration with the car, the performance of the AlphaTauri, or, you know, whether, whether his star has faded a little bit. Um, for me, I, what star? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's been a, a general downhill, uh, trend as of late since Red Bull. Anyway, where was he the guy? You know, like, yeah. And if anything, it's a, if, if my prediction holds, which I have Alpine at fourth, it was a heck of a move, a heck of a random move into the Alpine family for him up from, you know, what was a back of the grid car last year. So good career move for him. Now let's see if he delivers and actually has a chance to maybe create a star that you deem was, was never there to begin with. Yeah. We'll see. Um, for me, I I think Alpine stays in fourth because, and look, it's, I feel weird in this position because Given, you know, some of the skepticism of how they performed in testing, a lot of question marks around like the stability of the car. It looked really, you know, too, uh, too firm over curbs. It had a lot of bounces on the straightaways. And and so it just looked a little squirrely that plus the hype train that has, you know, left the station a long time ago for another team and is well down the tracks. I feel like I'm sort of going out on a limb and saying they're going to be in fourth. But I think when you realize that, they were improving late in the year, you know, engine reliability aside, they should have run away with fourth place beyond McLaren. You know, if they've made improvements on that front and haven't regressed significantly in terms of their overall car setup, I have a hard time seeing them drop so far back as, as some watchers of testing have said, you know, how much on the ropes Alpine might be. I just, I don't see it. I think that's a very rational uh, take, <laughs> but I have a more extreme one that I'm going <laughs> to defend. Let's vigorously. hear it. <laughs> right, well, we don't need to jump down to it. Oh, okay. This is an, another team. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's um, let's go to one that might be as equally as controversial. Um, fifth place finishers last season, McLaren uh, lost out to Alpine late in the year, albeit you know never really looked like they had the car under them, but more so. They didn't have a driver. Uh, they, they were basically going with one driver all season. Um, the vast majority of the points captured by Norris, you know, his counterpart no longer there, replaced with the, uh, the hot property that is or was Oscar Piastri. Um, so where do you have McLaren uh, moving this year from their fifth place? I wish I had one of those uh, buttons that Jim Cramer ha- always had on Mad Money where he was like, sell, 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 sell. <laughs> like, I, I, I've got these guys in eighth. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Yeah. So from in two years, from fourth to eighth. 
I think this is going to be like McLaren, Honda, Alonzo era bad. I think they were that low on the constructor's table. So it's not unprecedented. I think this is going to be a historically bad year for McLaren. Uh, it does not look good for a lot of reasons. I mean, look, literally like, like for what are the, like, why do you think it looks so bad? It's hard to, it's hard to pin at this point, like the degree of regression that they might be experiencing. I guess I would ask you the counter argument, which is like, what parts of the car do you think are working well? Like your top driver is like, obviously not happy. And it's only testing. The car doesn't seem to be well planted in any turn, low or high speed. The brake issues that you had a year ago last testing are still there. You've self-admitted that you haven't met any of your development targets. You lost Andreas Seidel to Alfa Romeo. I don't really know what they have in the four column. Like, and 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 I that's not I can't say the same for any other. There's a lot of t- reasons to be optimistic for a lot of other teams. I feel like McLaren has nothing but things working against them. If I'm totally honest, other than a long list of sponsors, whoop de do. Yeah, I mean, it almost makes you wonder. Are they more worried about you know driver dynamics and and global branding than they are about running a race team. Um, Is Zach Brown an ad guy? Is he just an ad guy? I don't know. Maybe he might, he might be. And well, and the thing that that stands out to me is they had so many parts with their last year it was braking, which was actually more serious, but they had so many issues that hampered their driving on those like wheel brow carbon fiber pieces and perceived to be a manufacturer defect. And if it's like, if you can't manufacture a relatively superficial element of the car, uh, it, it makes me worried about the more, the more critical, the more, the more high specification parts on the car that you have to get right and what that really means. But I guess my reason for putting them, I I only have them a position higher in seventh just because of, you know, I I have them dropping two spots just because I think you have a better base still. And and I, I'm a little bit more of a, uh, you know, status quo bias person, I guess, and not seeing, you know, the entire upheaval of the entire grid just based on what we see in testing. Um, look, they had a good Barcelona, but a week rest of testing. Um, and and then, you know, they still ended up fourth, fifth throughout most of the season. And so I think they'll be a little bit lower down, but I'm not I'm not quite pushing them to to eighth. Seventh is already bold enough, considering they appear to have a massive upgrade from the second driver's slot. But I'm. I, I think in general, people are that bearish about the quality. Yeah. I, again, I think Piastri is the big question mark for them, right? Which is, does yeah, it come it out guns blazing right away? But yeah, it can't be worse. And can't if it is, then, Ricardo. you know, you that was a big goose egg as well on that decision. So yeah, hopefully they didn't overpay him. But who knows? All right. Number six, Alfa Romeo. Where do you have him this year? I have him in sixth. Uh, so slotting in... Uh, uh, right after Alpine. Wow. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I'm a bit, you know, this may just be me seeing the livery and just, you know, going overboard. Totally. But I do style think, over substance. Well, you, yeah, for sure. But also looks fast, drives fast, right? I'm here to defend Joe a little bit. I think we may see. When did this happen? When did this change? It, it, I honestly don't know why it changed, but for whatever reason, I'm just a bit more optimistic. They, to me, are the sneaky good team that is going to have been good for a while without you really have ever noticing, like noticing them. And then you're going to check the constructors tables, like after the summer break and be like, Holy cow, Alfa Romeo has like been scoring some points. 
Like, I think they're going to do it very quietly, like very quietly uh, between the kind of low key personalities of Botas and Joe. Uh, to your point, the car maybe doesn't have as many notable characteristics on the grid anymore. I think they're just going to be one of those teams that's kind of. I, I think they're going to basically be the Alpha Towery of two years ago. Is kind of my view of them. Yeah, still a good compliment. Six play thousand Alpha Towery was in the mix a lot. Yeah, and hopefully they don't have any cars flipping over the you know into the into the yeah the catch fence. This that would certainly be nice. I'm sure Joe would would appreciate that. Um, well, I, I I have them actually sliding back into eighth place, largely and and basically nothing to do with them their advancement year over year or their driver dynamics. I think it's purely the, the progress made by other, by other teams seems more dramatic and just the Delta of what they had to what they have now from a driver perspective is more dramatic as well, right? Like they have the same driver lineup. I do think, uh, you know, they've made some interesting arrow innovations between the side pod and the floor and the rear diffuser. But I think a lot of that was maybe misdirection exaggerations of certain designs. So it'll be interesting to see what of those actually stays. And by and large, I think it'll be somewhat of a net out to a somewhat unexciting uh, evolution of overall car design. I think they'll potentially benefit from the Ferrari engine work. Um, But look, Botas is a known commodity. The ceiling is where it is for him. And I do think Joe had a really good, like what you would hope from a rookie season from a driver in terms of, you know, extraordinary stability very few of the incidents he found himself last year were truly his fault. And so I think for him, he just has to make that step from sort of showing his consistency and, and not wasting, you know, company resources a la Schumacher, but actually needs to show some aggression on track and he needs some standout performances. I don't think there was one race last year where you went, wow, Joe, he's got something special and, you know, he, he, he's been underrated this whole time. And so I think he just needs one or two of those races to, to differentiate himself a little bit. But the reason I have him in his eighth is the fact that they didn't score points in the last two thirds of the season, practically all their points came in the first, you know, eight races of the year. And so eight, nine races. And so I think they benefited from probably a larger development window leading into the regulation changes and proof that they didn't really have the evolution mid-season. And so I think given all those other sort of mid-tier teams making progress and I think showing development throughout the year and more runway to gain in terms of driver improvement or you know engine reliability improvement, I just don't see, and I think they have plenty of that for themselves, but I just don't see, see them, um, I guess, holding pace relative to, to what some of the other teams have done. I think that's fair that I, yes, from a resource standpoint, I don't know what would be substantially different about their ability to develop post the summer break relative to the last season, other than maybe the addition of Andreas Seidel, but I can't imagine that he would affect change or any type of investment. The Audi stuff hasn't kicked in yet. Right. And ownership hasn't even changed. So I don't think that that would make a substantial difference. Um, So it's a good point. All right. Well, now the moment that you have been waiting for, Last year's number seven finishers in the Constructors' Championship and maybe, just maybe, this year's World Constructors' Championship winners, (laughs) Aston Martin. I have them fourth in the Constructors' standings this year. Three-place jump. 
I'm buying the hype. I want it all. I want it all minus Lance Stroll, but he just kind of has to come along with it. <laughs> I'm buying Alonzo. Uh, I'm buying the Dan Fallows impact on that hybrid aero design that you talked about earlier. Everybody was joking with them last year because they had that green Red Bull. Looked like they were just kind of hacking off pieces of now, this year, they seem to have their own philosophy that's a blend of a lot of different philosophies with some of their own baked in, and there is no denying that that thing looks planted on the track. It looks fast. It looks like it has the race pace of the Mercedes based on testing data alone, like objectively. I don't know if that's going to hold at Bahrain, but if you were going on testing alone, it appears that could be possible. Um, so, yeah, the real question is, can it be reliable enough? Whoever really knows. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they're a team that suffers from reliability issues in the earlier season and then kind of starts to build momentum as the season goes on. Um, But I think it's pretty undeniable that they seem to – it seems that all the big dollars that Lawrence Stroll spent a year plus, two years ago, poaching talent from Mercedes Red Bull, maybe some of that's coming home to roost in some of the kind of foundational aero philosophy of the car, and some of this is going to start to pay off. I mean – I would imagine that their technical director, Dan Fallows, who they poached from Red Bull, who was Red Bull's head of aero, had something to do with the development of the current Red Bull car that we are seeing today. And 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 may have had a lot to do with kind of its foundational design and trajectory of its development. So it would be unsurprising to me. It's like, oh, if a guy who played a key role in that is now at Aston Martin, hmm, like wouldn't surprise me if they start taking steps forward. Like at the end of the day, that sometimes makes a difference in F1. It's like, do you have the right engineering... I mean, it is not. it is a talent business. Hundred percent, it's a talent business. I mean, that's why Adrian Dewey is who he is. So I, I'm as much as I dislike the personalities of the strolls and the evil. They're I, they're not an empire, but the evil kind of dark persona that they have. I like the bad guy persona of Alonzo as a counterbalance to that, and it makes the overall team easier for me to palate. And I'm very very bullish on where they go this year. And overall, I think with Aston Martin, I mean, we'll, we'll give Stroll a hard time, but admittedly, he had a lot of good he had a lot of good performances last year, and in a lot of cases, was quite comparable to a multi you know drivers champion winner. So, I mean, you're you, right. You can't fault him too severely for you know his position, and he has a lot of experience, right? So, I, I don't think they're hurting really as bad in the in the driver department as we like to as we like to tease, but I I feel like I have a distinct memory of you jumping on a similar hype train last year only to be um, largely disappointed. And so if your track record has, wait, Wait, do you think this is more extreme than my Haas take last year? No. Haas was literally coming off a divorce (laughs) from a, a Russian (laughs) or, oil and gas oligarch in a severing of one of their drivers. (laughs) No, you, you've had, you found a slightly better vessel for an equally hot take. So, so I know I don't think it's as extreme as your, your Haas prediction. And look, I'm not actually going to go that far off of you either. I'm a little, I'm going to buy the hype a little bit only because I'm fascinated by the design and, and a big believer in, and there being balance in all things and the idea that Red Bull and Ferrari that sounded super hippie <laughs> represent. I know, right. I've been watching too many Aaron Rodgers videos. Um, <laughs> did, 
How was the darkness retreat last week, by the way? I couldn't make I couldn't make the four days. <laughs> my, my thoughts are too. You made it two hours. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I do think um, so. I'm not going to be as as optimistic, but I think the idea that Red Bull Ferrari represent sort of two ends of the spectrum and and Aston blending those two and trying to find the the medium balance between them only reinforces the fact that I think they're in a good place. I think the teams have talked really positively about them. I think the even more shocking thing is that the team of Aston Martin and the drivers have at times talked very positively about themselves, which um, if anything, that gives me, well, really doesn't happen. I mean, if anything, teams downplay it. And so to have that much sort of visible confidence, you'd have to think that they have something behind that. Um, but I'm going to put him at fifth. So for me, it's still a two spot spot jump. But again, I, I'm leaning more on um, Aston looks weak. Alpha or Alpha Romeo hasn't taken as big of a step forward, but Alpine still has a good platform, and they make gains in the engine reliability. And so I think Aston's up there, and now you have a pretty solid at least three team um, sort of sort of midfield with Alpine, Aston Martin, and McLaren. Hey, and lest we not forget, you know, I think there's probably some lieutenants at Aston Martin like Mike Crack that legitimately believe that if they don't perform, like Lawrence Stroll will have them killed. So fear is a great motivator. I mean, that it, it could push them a long way. <laughs> hey, whatever, uh, leadership whatever 101, it whatever it takes. <laughs> um, all right, number eight last year, Haas. Uh, I know much to your disappointment. I think you slotted them at what, fourth or fifth last year? What, so. Fourth? Fourth again. Yeah. Uh, so a little bit of humble pie with, with the Haas team. Where do you have them this year? I only bumped them one spot rather than four to five. So I've got them in seventh (laughs) overall. Uh, the main contributor just being driver stability in general. Um, uh, I, I'm not somebody that really championed the Hulkenberg, uh, move, but there's no denying that he will likely crash less than Mick did last year, which means he will likely score more points. So, uh, makes me slightly more optimistic for their outlook from an engineering standpoint. I, they're kind of meh in terms of, I don't think it's particularly bad. I don't think it's particularly great. I think it's somewhere in the middle. So, um, I think they could be looking at a very similar season in terms of car performance and slightly better driver performance. Well, and I, and I have them at six, so I actually have them jumping up two spots. I think for no, no other reason than they started off the last year really strongly, albeit again, they had multiple years to think about that car. Um, but their big hang up last year was a lack of midseason development budget. And so again, all the same things you said about Hulk versus Schumacher, you know, that was a bit of our idealism in terms of pure like driver personality and potential. But when you think about the economics that they faced, it made sense. That plus also having a little bit more secure funding as well, uh, I think will help them feel confident to be able to d- develop the car midseason. And I just see them being willing to take a little bit more design risks. I mean, when you look at sort of the rear end of their car, for example, they do some different things than a lot of other teams from, you know, what that sort of um, sort of middle uh, fin across the back of the engine to like the curvature of the, the tail of the car to the kind of the dragon scale venting and trying to kind of diversify the, the vertice, the vortices coming off of the back of the car. I just think they do some different creative things and and we'll see if it pays off. But again, I think you see some other teams sort of dropping back that it, it puts them in a good position. Question for you. Who do you think performs better this year? 
Magnuson or Hulkenberg? Oh God, that's a good question. Uh, I'm inclined to say Magnuson, but I really don't know why, other than the fact that he's got one more season. Uh, honestly, I could see that one being a coin, bit of a coin toss. I don't really know. You have an opinion? I, you know, I think just because the flashes that Hulkenberg showed, like Magnuson got in the car and was successful really quickly. Magnuson had the pole position, albeit, you know, due to largely uh, fortunate circumstances. I just think Hulkenberg, at least in past years when he would jump in a car, has shown that ability to like pick it up very quickly. Um, and so I, I think I'm going to go with Hulkenberg. I think he's going to to come out and, and finish ahead of, of Magnuson. Well, I'm glad they've at least figured out a way to make jokes about the suck my balls mate moment. Seems like he and Hulk are on good terms now. So that's good. You know, I think when you come back from the brink, you're happy to be there and you'll drive with probably just about anybody. So I think uh, dire circumstances breed breed new friendships. I'm sure Pierre Grassley is th- currently thinking the same thing, but he is probably going to eat those words. Uh, all right, well... Ex-Gasly team now, AlphaTari, finished ninth place. Uh, where do you have him this year? I got him dead last, my man. <laughs> Whoa. Behind, dead. Will- behind Williams? I dead freaking last. Yeah, wow. I have zero optimism. I'm in a bit of a similar story here to, uh, to uh, McLaren in that I just don't see a lot of positives. Last year, all my theories about their proximity to Red Bull from a development standpoint – uh, were completely shattered, so I don't believe any of that crap anymore. And uh, I don't know. Testing didn't make me feel a whole particularly lot better other than those couple fast laps. Sonoda banged it at the very end. But aside from that, man, uh, I mean, I, it, it says a lot when your brand-new driver, Nick DeVries, like, is already critical and unhappy, and the dude has not even had a full season in F1. Like, I don't know. I'm not optimistic. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I, I do think the the saving grace for them is having DeVries in the car because of the diversity of, of drives that he had last year, the exposure to the Mercedes. I think he just brings a, a good perspective. And, and if he can apply that into successful development of the car, I think it may not translate this year, but it'll certainly be... A, uh, an improvement for late in the year and into next year. So I have him. I have him finishing the same place as last year in in ninth place, which leaves tenth place finisher last year for Williams, and that means you have Williams in ninth place, making improvements this year. <laughs> Big step forward. For yeah. Williams. Wow. It could could be the difference between a one point delta because Latifi is no longer on the grid. Like this is the space on the constructors table where not having somebody like Latifi and not crashing once makes a difference between ninth or 10th. So is that the big distinguisher for you is just AlphaTauri dropping and the fact that you have a new driver coming in and, and Sargent? One of the worst drivers in the last decade historically being gone. And and that's not because I think Logan Sargent, we, we should have a separate conversation in this thread about whether we think Logan Sargent's going to be good or not. To me, I don't know if he's going to be good, but he'll be better than Latifi, which means he'll keep it on track. And if Williams actually has a car worthy of points, Logan Sargent will find a way to score them when he's in a position to do so. Alex Albon will drive, will outdrive the car, which is what I think we're expecting to do. Sargent will just do what the car probably is meant to do. Latifi did less than what the car was meant to do. Um, 
So yeah, that's my general rationale for bumping them up once. But um, I mean, in general, the macro wins at Williams are not good. Like they've cleaned house again with team principal and technical director. There's a lot of turmoil. There's no way the new regime's got time and have settled in. I mean, their technical director started like two weeks ago. So I no other reason to be optimistic or feel like the car itself is going to take a substantial step forward. Had a good testing series though. Did a that's lot my criticism is I, I just I didn't really see any changes year over year, right? While well, you see different teams that are, you know, middle, the back of the grid, trying dramatically different things, it just seems like last year's car. And that probably has to do a large bit with the organizational change. But yeah, we'll see if a uh, if a new a new driver is worth a worth a constructor's position. Yeah, we will. All right. Now we talk teams. Let's move on to drivers specifically. Would love to hear the top, you know, five or really six, since you know top three teams have six drivers. But would love to hear about the tops, and then maybe inversely, who's who's really on the hot seat this year out of all out of all drivers. I'm going to give you seven just because I got to throw in a seventh variable because we know that the top six are going to be only three different teams, to your point. Well, that is interesting. Both of us, neither of us have a driver outside of the top three teams in the top six. You can't look at the constructors' tables and the predictions we just made and make a case for anything else. I I don't know how you would. I mean, the disparity last year in points, there's there's just no way to make that math work yeah it'd be one thing if ferrari and mercedes had a really weak second driver but that's not the case so i so for me i have verstappen perez one two that i think that's just a reflection of me feeling really bullish on just the red bull car strength in general verstappen for me is a no-brainer perez might be a lot closer and then i've got hamilton third leclerc russell in fifth and then sign sixth and then my seventh driver is alonzo so that's where the hype train pulls into the station. Alonzo, he buries his previous Alpine reliability woes in the past, and he finds himself racing competitively towards the front on a regular basis. Do you think they, awesome. they push into rivaling the top three or not? I certainly think that they could be there at the beginning of the season. Whether they can stay there, I don't know. But I, based on their te- pace and testing, I, I think it's possible they show up to Bahrain and are on the race pace of Mercedes. I, I really do think that's possible. Like, I think Alonso could come out and go lap for lap. With, dude, how much fun would it be to see Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton go lap for lap, back and forth in a race on equal pace at Bahrain? How cool of a of a like a intra race story would that be? Aside from like you know Verstappen battling whoever, if anybody can keep up keep up with them, that'd be awesome. You just sound like you're spinning some Will Buxton fan fiction over there. I just I love I, man. We're gonna get to drive survive here before we wrap, but like his whole like embracing kind of the bad guy persona. I freaking love that. He's so unapologetic about it. I really want Alonzo to be relevant in more races i just think it makes them you and i compliment max all the time and use how he enhances the excitement of racing as a crutch to overcome how much of a dick he can be we talk about that all the time i feel like alonzo brings a lot of those same things to the table and i just want him to be more relevant in races i just think it makes him better well and i actually i would agree with you i think he would be my seventh place driver and i think i put him even though the team finishes behind alpine in front of both alpine drivers. Because Stroll finished behind Alpine. Yeah, Yeah, he outperformed Stroll 
and the Alpines outperform Stroll, but Alonso outperforms Alpine. So who are your other six, your, your top four? I mean, same top six, but I had Verstappen and Leclerc one, two. Again, I think especially if the three teams tighten up as well, you might just see enough circumstances where Perez loses out points in a third and fourth place that he he slips further back. And I think you just see Leclerc in second enough. Again, assuming they don't throw away points on on egregious strategic blunders. Um, after that, I have Perez in third. So I have the same finishing top three as last year. Um, but then I have Hamilton, Sainz, and, and Russell. And the, the inversion with Hamilton and Russell is, I just don't think they're going to subject Hamilton to the same responsibilities of being, you know, uh, the the guinea pig for a big part of the early season, and when you stacked up the end of season, I mean Hamilton was was back to form and and closed the gap with with Russell, and I expect that out of the gate. Yeah, uh, Will Buxton had a really good take on the Sky broadcast about Lewis Hamilton bearing a lot of the development brunt and experimentation brunt, and I hadn't I'd thought about it in the season last year, but not really that critically, and I, I do agree he. He probably sacrificed a lot of just like overall driver performance to help the team sort out their issues. And I, I agree that a lot of that will be minimized this year. Which I think you have to give him credit for, right? Because totally. admittedly, they didn't have much to lose at that point. But I mean, he he had to willingly play that role, right? Like that wouldn't have been forced upon him if he didn't want it. But so I think he proactively took that on himself, which I think is very commendable, especially given the scrutiny that you you had to know he would receive you know, as he lagged to, to Russell. And so I, I think more credit to him for that. All right, let's get to, uh, who do you driver most in the hot seat this year? Uh, and I know I'm throwing out this at you last minute, so I'll, I'll give you my, my take. And I think for me, the driver in the biggest hot seat has to be Sonoda, right? I think there's been question marks about his overall, um, Maturity as a driver, I think that was improved from last year, but still not perfect. I think he has a new uh, a new rookie driver coming in who won points in a Williams in his first in his debut race, and has a lot of experience coming from other teams to help develop a car, and no longer really has the the relationship with Honda to to support the the sort of national sponsorship of a Japanese driver in the Honda car. But who's the young driver that Red Bull really wants to have that seat? Because that's the thing that I don't have a clear answer to. Sonoda's the first driver that came to mind for me when you asked me that question, but I I still don't know who they would rather have from the driver development program in that seat. I just I think at this point there's so meant like so it's just a many bunch of guys young, pick one. There's just an abundance at this point yeah. that it's hard to say whether or not you could just plug and play different people into that. Or whether or not they're truly like this distinct talent that you have to to keep around. And I think as you get guys like Piastri and, and DeVries coming in and Sargent coming in this year, like I think you're gonna see an interesting recalibration. Um, because it's been a little while since you since you really had that with you know, drivers that were expected to come in and deliver immediately. And so I think he's gonna be under a lot of pressure with DeVries. That being said, I think we'll get to this in our wild predictions of he might have a security in his seat just based on all the other moves that might go go on around him. If DeVries outperforms him, he's done. There's no question about that. That's That would be the name. Unless DeVries moves on before him, and then what are the Red Bull going to do? They're going to accept two open spots? Then you just keep him because you have stability. I don't 
know that there's yeah i don't know if i can see another driver more at risk than sonoda um the other one would be stroll but he's not really at risk unless aston martin is sold so which is possible as well and i think just relative perception okay he doesn't beat alonzo like is anybody not expecting that to happen yeah yeah true so he's got to like grossly underperform so yeah who would anyone else you pick other than Sonoda or I'm definitely not taking either of the Ferrari drivers. I think Sainz has done an admirable job. Definitely not either of the Merck drivers. I don't think you can really make a case for Perez. And if you did, it'd be a stretch because they just extended him. Um, Who's left? I mean, Zoe, I could, I mean, it's tough to make a Botas. Maybe he's got he just too big retires. of a market for sponsorship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think so. Yeah. The only one other one I'll give you, and it's not really from a true losing their drive perspective, but I think just an erosion of, their perception as a driver is I think, I think it's Lando. All right. He kind of has a lot to lose in terms of his like relative perspective of he's kind of been on easy street. He's, he's outperformed what people thought the car had. He's had, you know, a peer who was just not up to pace even remotely. And so if he has a peer who's coming in and like truly challenging him, does he no longer look like, you know, this, this outstanding star talent. And obviously Piastri has good pedigree as well in terms of his history, but I think it just I think it might just change the dynamic dramatically from what he's been used to the last, you know, at least two years. I think his place as a kind of tier one or edge tier one driver is pretty cemented. Hmm. I, I and I think it's very unlikely that in a bad car, Piastri outperforms him in some substantial way. Like you I think it just then says more about Piastri that like, no matter what, if Piastri does well, it just looks better for Piastri. It's either going to say more about Piastri or less about McLaren, but I don't know that really any of it sticks to Lando one way or the other. I think mm. the more likely thing is that Lando's confidence in McLaren is so eroded by the end of the year that he's desperately looking for an out. And then the next option comes to okay, does he try and seal up the Perez seat post-2024? Or does he try and figure out when Lewis is going to retire? Like, because he's a guy deserving of a signing with a team like that. And I I think it's unlikely that that perception changes this year. So it sounds like we might have had a natural segue here into our wild predictions segment. Uh, yep. You want to you wanna continue that thought with, with Norris and, and potential Red Bull rumors? I'm not ready to say that he moves because there's just not going to be a seat open for him. But I think that the Lando move rumors are going to be loud at the end of this season. Mm. And it's obviously related to my pessimism on McLaren as a team. But uh, I think he is going to be in a state of full-on regret about the length of the original deal he signed with McLaren. And be back channeling. Obviously a lot of this we probably won't know about or be privy to, but be trying to organize himself into a top three team seat uh, by 2024 or five. I think his contract with McLaren is still 2024 right now, maybe through 2024, at least it may go to 2025, but um, yeah. So rumor swirling, that's not really that much of a bold prediction, but I, it's hard to say like where he's going to go because th- there's just not going to be any open seats. So unless Perez like totally shits the bed this year, which maybe he will. I don't know. Um, If Perez totally shits the bed this year, then I could absolutely see Horner doing something like that and going to get in Lando. I mean, I 
I think his story is a is a cautionary tale for anybody signing a, a long term deal. Basically, that you know, by the time he gets to it, almost crosses two regulation changes. Uh, so, I mean, huge risk he undertook there. Uh, and seeing what your comment was about Norris, I actually took a, a different tact, which is my prediction, my wild prediction. Let's be clear: is DeVries blows the doors off of Sonoda as seen as a huge force in car development. And when Perez's contract uh, concludes, he actually takes over at Red Bull and they have the Dutch duo. And so Norris, because of the length of his contract, might miss out on on the ability to to claim that seat. Interesting. I like that. Yeah, I think I think DeVries, you know, uh, slow to get his start, but he comes storming in and, and sort of I usurps like the, the common order. And then I, what I would say from that is I think what opens up is Lando's subjected to figure out something short term, potentially depending on how long Hamilton goes on for. And I could see them. I, I could see Mercedes wanting to to have the the sort of Russell Norris British duo on on their side. That would be an all time lineup for Mercedes. Yeah. So that's my that's my thought. What else you got on the uh, out of the the wild predictions? Hold, hold this is this one's a roller coaster. So hang with me. Aston obviously finishes fourth in the constructors. Plot twist: Lawrence then sells the team high because you know obviously buy buy low sell high philosophy. We all find out he's been in it for the money. Stroll gets the boot like we all believe he would anyway without Lawrence at the helm. And then in 2024, who steps back in the door, kicking it in with his freaking Australian boots on, Danny Rick, back in Formula One, alongside Fernando Alonso, 2024, under new ownership. No idea who those owners will be, but new ownership nonetheless. Honestly, you had me until Danny Rick comes along really? with Alonso. That's pretty... I had you for a while then. Yeah, yeah. You, you, had, you, you brought me along. I, I think... I think next year is just too soon, right? I mean, I, I think if you had to draw the trajectory of valuations, you're at this like crazy inflection point and, and, and probably the steepest curve you're going to have over the next couple of years. But does that become a reality? Especially if if you potentially see lots of interesting suitors and maybe there's a need to like, there's maybe a need to lock it because there's, there's only so many suitors that there's going to be, right? And so... I, you know, knowing that that pool of buyers is limited, do you see a team trying to compete for the quicker sale that might accelerate the, the deal timeline. Um, but at the same time, it just feels too early where you see in this massive growth for them to want to, to pick that out. But look, I would entertain that no way. I, my not so wild prediction in my mind is Ricardo doesn't end up anywhere. I mean, at this point, why would I take him over anyone else? I mean, he's been, He's been measured and he's been found wanting. And I think relative to really any young driver he's gone against in recent years and with the, again, the amount of new talent that's just piling up in the in the queue, I, I just don't see him. And besides, we already have a new a new Aussie on the grid. We don't, we don't, we've proved this with the Canadians. We don't need any more than one. We've met our quota. They're, a sport, they're more of a sporting nation than Canada. Be kind. <laughs> but I, I think his, his role is best served as brand ambassador. And he should, uh, he, he should gladly embrace that. Cause uh, unless he wants a, a cheap drive, 
I don't see him making his way back to a top team anytime soon. Well, I'm not holding my breath for him to learn Photoshop and join their marketing team. So uh, he'll have to go find another car to race. All right. Uh, any other any other big predictions for for next year or for this year? Now, I guess Jeez, the other one I was there. straddling was kind of that whole question of does AlphaTauri get sold by Red Bull or not? Kind of all those rumors are swirling now. Uh, the more I think about it, I'm not sure I totally have a strong opinion on that one way or the other. Um, I think it's possible, maybe not probable. Uh, cause I think at the end of the day, Red Bulls, like they benefit from having basically a farm team and uniquely so on the grid. So I can't see them wanting to give that up unless the dollars and cents just make no sense. Um, but yeah. What about you? Make lots of sense. So many cents there make dollars. A lot of sense. Um, well, I'm sure we'll revisit that uh, in in weeks to come. I, I think my other outlandish predictions would be, and maybe not so much given where we think Alonzo will be at seventh. I think Alonzo is the only driver out of a, a not top three team to to land on the podium this year. I also I like think that, that um, you know, consistent with my support of Joe, I think he outperforms Botas this year by end of season. I, I I think that that's likely, mostly because Valtteri just seems like all he wants to do is race bikes now. So. Exactly. I mean, he's just too caught up in cycling and craft beer. So I think mullets. Uh, and, and mullets, mustache, and craft beer, a world champion driver does not make. And what is his gin? Oath, oath, gin. He's got his own gin now too. He's exactly. A diversified man. I got to give him credit. Yeah. No, I give him credit, but I think you know a man only has so many hours in the day. And I think last year there was a lot of pressure on Joe to sort of support the dreams of a billion, a billion of his countrymen and, and represent them well. And he did that. And now it's time for him to kind of push the envelope a little bit more. And, and I think he will. Yep. All right. I like that. With that being said, it'll be interesting to, uh, to catch up with, with this in, I don't know what, 23 episodes later and, and see where we stand end of season. Uh, but Let's pivot now and, and bring it home with Drive to Survive season five. What was your what was your take? How was it? How has it changed? Can I lead it off back to you with a redirected question? Do you think this was better or worse than last season? Knowing all of last season's well documented critiques, over dramatization, made up storylines, do you think they got better or got worse? Stayed the same. Oh, massively better. Okay. Um, I think so much so that there was so much drama both on the track between the teams and, and they coaxed so much good direct commentary from the principal, the team principals in, in particular that well Buxton was just relegated to more or less repeating the same things that the team principals did, except in slightly more hyperbolic language with more pauses. Um, and so I think he became kind of a non-factor, um, albeit still excessively dramatizing things almost to the point though, where I think you can do away with that narration kind of more to the, to the style of like certain documentaries where they show the drama with the graphics and the tracking of the, the teams throughout the year. So I think they just maintained like the linear storyline better. It wasn't so overly dramatic. They kept it to like the drama on the track and the intensity to successfully deliver team to team and across drivers. Um, and interestingly though, I, I think they leaned away from the, the driver to driver controversy and, and sort of use the principles to, to take up that like relationship drama instead, which I think is actually better because 
I think the team principles, especially in recent years, have embodied that more like they're the they're the entity you hate, whereas everyone likes different elements of all the drivers. And so they sort of bear the brunt of the um, the controversy, real or or contrived. And I think the principals are kind of more comfortable with and expected to be like political players because it's yes. part of their job. Right? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I agree with your take in general. I think it was improved because of the lack of melodrama and in particular, the more linear storyline. I think both those things combined meant that they were creating a season that would better serve actual F1 fans. Hmm. The yep. difference is, though, and I just think it's worth acknowledging, you and I are both, we follow the sport very closely, and so we liked it better. When I have polled people who don't follow the sport closely into a season but still like to watch Drive to Survive, they feel that it's gotten worse. Hmm. So the appeal to the non-F1 fan, but to the person who just generally appreciates the entertainment value of it, they feel like they've lost something. Uh, now, granted, I haven't sampled the whole country. Fuck them. That's what I say. I, I'm just saying that I guess the only point I'm trying to reinforce is damned if they do, damned if they don't. No matter what they change, they're going to serve a specific audience with the new direction they go. And they just have to decide which audience they care about. I think the show is at a level of popularity now, along with the sport of F1, where they're smarter to prioritize people that are more in line with the actual F1 fan base and are following the actual season. So that it, it seemed like the right time to pivot. And uh, the outcry grunt loud enough. So I, I, I also credit Netflix. I think they responded to a lot of the feedback. They also, uh, they got Max obviously back into the fold after his kind of departure from being involved because he was critical of some of the melodrama. They really, in the way they crafted the Red Bull narratives and in particular the audio of Max from his interviews and things, they never talked about the Perez Max thing at um, what was it, race was it late in the year where they were like, this is who he really is. It was like uh, it's probably Brazil, right? Brazil. Yeah. They never talked about that. I think they were very much on eggshells with the Red Bull narrative for how they crafted that season, given some of the, the dynamics. Yeah, there seemed like there was back. no negative slant at all towards them. No, they wouldn't touch any negative on Red Bull. For me, though, there's two, two just... The thing, so the value that I get out of Drive to Survive now is less about the overarching stories and more just about the little nuggets, like the oh, little yeah. thirty-second clip that you got behind the scenes that you never would have gotten F one coverage because Netflix cameras were there. And some of it is like the off-season at this guy's vacation house type stuff, which is funny. But my favorite moment was the team principals meeting on porpoising in episode two. Oh, a hundred percent. Toto comes in with an agenda. Starts going off. Christian's like, shouldn't we be doing this off camera? And Toto was like, F that. It basically berated everybody in the room. And Christian Horner just goes, then change your fucking car. <laughs> if you don't like porpoising, change your car. That was one of the best exchange. I loved that they got that. Well, I thought it was like all the principals, even Bonato, everyone oh, was like, just thought it was just absurd. rolling their eyes. Yeah. yeah. But and then also at the beginning of that meeting, they had to shush Gunther like a little schoolboy because he was talking with his, you know, his his buddy Bonato in Italian, which is a whole other topic. Yeah. So, anyway, that and then was he's my like, oh, sorry, one. professor. He's yeah. like even like condescending to Minicali. I know. I know. Gunther, like, I think the fame's going to his head a little bit, but. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, so in terms of like the the overall appeal, it is interesting, you know, given the nature of the fan and, and who likes what. 
I mean, I think for them, it's good to see them respond to the feedback, but I, I think it has to ultimately be calibrated to like who, what is the viewer that they have and what is the viewer that they, that they want? And like, have they achieved the, the saturation of like new, new audience members, right? You, you, you've reached critical mass and people who are not that interested are going to tune out anyway, right? Because just like any sport, it's kind of the same thing over and over again with, you know, the nuanced differences between what actually happens at the end of it um, versus do they continue to evolve it to say, now we have like more of a solidified base of interest and how do we modify it from there to continue to give deeper looks into, you know, the organizational management and the, and the business side of things, et cetera. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see where they, where they correct from here. Anything else on drive to survive to highlight? I mean, my personal highlight, you talked about the the controversy between the principals. I just liked seeing Gunther and, and Bonato hanging out at Bonato's like vineyard at the the foot of the Dolomites and <laughs> drinking awesome. wine and hanging out. And I was like, all right, I, I, Bonato went way up on my list after, after that, I wouldn't mind being, being buddies with him either. But I think it goes to show just the, the, um, like the relationship savvy that Gunther has to like really embed himself and seemingly have a positive relationship with Bonato. And I mean, they they're from like close parts of the same country. Right. So, I mean, obviously that, that relationship is there, but I mean, I, th- I think as you mentioned, right, it must take good relationship savvy with Gene Haas to, to maintain that position that he's had despite some, you know, questionable performance. So um, yeah, another look at, at Gunther. Everybody mark the, uh, the take. I, 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 that was noteworthy for me too, but my takeaway was actually to make note of the 2023 vintage at Bonato's Vineyard because he's going to have more time than ever to make sure that that's a great wine. So <laughs> I you think know, qual- two- production quality is really ramping Produ- up here. <laughs> production quality is probably going through the roof. So I, I'm, you know, two, three years, I'm going to start looking for that bottle online. Well, I wonder if Piero can, uh, if he's got a direct, a direct connection. That guy is a freaking wine hound. He'll hunt it down in an hour. <laughs> yeah. Probably nice. buy a case of it without asking me. Well, nice, man. Well, it sounds like we're uh, we're set up for a good one this year. So, I think we'll uh, we'll be back here. What in a in only a week's time? Well, what can, what can people expect? More, you know, an episode per race, more lackluster, late updated uh, podcast episodes, or, or are we going to be doing some different stuff? What what can folks expect this season? I think uh, you can expect more of the same, if not slightly less. <laughs> <laughs> man come on I'm, I'm putting a golf ball on a tee for you we're going oh, multi-medium oh, oh. we're doing oh. youtube shorts we're doing video yeah in terms of actual like quality of content and entertainment value definitely going oh you just need distribution to- reach yeah, yeah. yeah we're totally selling <laughs> yeah. out all mediums all the time yeah. yes but actual quality every- and substance I'll bring Minimal on every to no cheap difference. advertiser that we can possibly bag. You know, we'll start running friggin' tampon ads if it if it gets us. I think we're just going to start doing ads that aren't even paying us. Sherry's Berries. <laughs> Are you looking for something special for your loved one this Valentine's? Honestly, can you imagine a sadder lawsuit than getting sued by a company for advertising something they didn't ask you to advertise? <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's almost as bad as getting sued for your intro music. Shh. <laughs> 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 I think he's again, I think he's busy. Uh <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is a fun one, G. Thanks for going along with me. Likewise. But what are you are you trying to plug the are you trying to plug the YouTube, the shorts, the what oh, else yeah, we got on gonna, deck? 
No, we're gonna. That's well, nothing else. Honestly, it's not a long <laughs> oh, list. Of that was short. Okay. Maybe some. Maybe some special guests who have not been determined nor will be named, <laughs> <laughs> or even conceptualized. <laughs> conceptualized. <laughs> but guests. Yeah. YouTube but, full yeah. videos. Shorts. We're, we're some. I'm personally somewhat surprised we're here for a second season. I'm happy that we are, and we're gonna we're gonna continue to innovate. We got nothing to lose. Uh, but time here, and uh, neither of our time is particularly valuable. So here we Nothing are. to lose and only slightly more to gain. Yep. Love Looking it. forward to it. We'll see you then. All right, buddy. See you soon. Bye. Peace.